Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nolpothanchel. The opioid crisis continues to devastate the state and the nation. Almost half a million people have died from all forms of opioid overdoses in the last two decades. The Connecticut Department of Public Health says accidental overdoses killed almost 1,400 people in the state in 2020. Most of those were caused by opioids. That's up almost 15 percent from the previous year. Connecticut has played a role in several important multi-billion dollar legal cases related to the opioid epidemic. Those cases could determine how much money is available for treatment and prevention of opioid abuse. They could also determine what kind of penalties the makers and distributors of the highly addictive pain medication could face. The legal battles could also determine what compensation is available for people who were hurt or lives that were ended by addiction. Today, we'll get an overview of some of those efforts. Our guest is Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. To start off with, let's begin discussing Purdue Pharma, the company based in Stanford. So how central was Purdue to the aggressive and allegedly misleading sale of prescription opioids? So the way I put it is Purdue helped to start this crisis. They lit the match and started this fire, and they had the opportunity um, over several years to help us in Connecticut put that fire out, but instead they poured gasoline on it and have played a central role through their drug OxyContin in, in fueling the opioid crisis that costs Connecticut so much. It's been devastating. You talked about 1,400 people that we lose um, every year now, and that number is growing. That's 1,400 families in Connecticut that are wrecked by this crisis um, and, and more than $10 billion in damage and multiply that over many, many hundreds of thousands of people and communities across this country and the damage is profound. So a Purdue Pharma bankruptcy plan is is nearing possible approval in, in court right now. As part of the bankruptcy, I understand the Sacklers would pay about $4.5 billion over nine years, but you and the state of Connecticut are not on board. So what's wrong with the, the proposed bankruptcy deal? You know, it's just not enough justice. It doesn't do enough, enough to fund treatment and prevention, and the Sacklers don't do enough to acknowledge their role, their central role in starting and fueling this crisis. And, and some people have said to me, well, you know, a few billion dollars is a lot of money, and, and it is a lot of money, but it's not enough. And I've said from the very beginning, I wasn't going to agree just to any deal, because any amount of money helps, that's true. But um, I've said all along that a, a bad deal is so much worse than no deal. And I'm not willing to do um, a, a settlement or agree to a settlement that does not recognize the Sackler's central role and doesn't really, I think, go enough and far enough to helping Connecticut and states across the country confront this crisis. 
So in, in terms of, of the process, there's this proceeding going on in court right now, and Connecticut is, is arguing against the, this settlement. But if, if the judge accepts it, does Connecticut actually have the option to somehow sort of go to opt out of this or to, to go its own way and, and pursue litigation? Or if the judge accepts it, is, is everybody kind of bound by it? No. So we very strongly oppose the proposed settlement and plan of reorganization for Purdue Pharma. Let's be clear what's happening. Purdue Pharma, the company, has declared bankruptcy. And we can argue about whether Purdue Pharma is bankrupt or not. But the bankruptcy laws are designed to help Purdue Pharma reorganize and, frankly, discharge its debts. But the Sacklers are not bankrupt. Nobody thinks for a second that the Sacklers have no money. They've walked out of this company with more than $11 billion. And you and I know that it's probably a heck of a lot more than that squirreled away in offshore accounts. And, and, and that's been used to buy art and boats and houses and cars. And nobody is um, asking the Sacklers to sell their boats and their cars and their houses and their art. And even if they give a few billion dollars to, to settle their claims, they're not gonna feel any pain. And the fact is, is that people across Connecticut and across this country feel the pain of addiction and the loss of their loved ones every single day. And so my principal objection and the objection of eight other states is Purdue Pharma has declared bankruptcy, the Sacklers have not. They should not be allowed to use the company's bankruptcy to shield themselves when they, the Sacklers, are not bankrupt. There is no reason why the judge should force states to give up our claims and release our claims against the Sacklers when I don't think and we don't think that that's important to resolving claims against the company. Once this, or if this, this settlement is accepted by the judge, is is there any other sort of recourse for Connecticut or for the, this, the any other states that, that are objecting to it? Yeah, we're considering all our options, um, and all viable options are on the table. But but let me let me dig a little deeper on on why we object. The states are different than than everyone else, every other claimant and plaintiff uh, in this bankruptcy and in this matter. States have what are known as police powers. Those are our powers to protect residents in our states. And, and we get those powers by virtue of, of the fact that states are sovereign states. And to the extent that uh, states have delegated power to the federal government um, and to a federal bankruptcy judge, we, we've only done that um, to a limited extent, right? Otherwise, states have retained our police powers. And we have never delegated to the federal government um, or to a federal bankruptcy judge the power to take away our claims against the Sacklers or Purdue Pharma. We, we've never given up our sovereign authority to go after the Sackler family and other wrongdoers. And so there's no reason why a federal bankruptcy judge sitting in White Plains, New York, should be able to force the state of Connecticut to give up its rights, to give up its claims, and to release the Sacklers from liability. And that's why I'm fighting tooth and nail. And I can tell you my sister states that are with me, California, Washington State, Maryland, we're going to keep fighting. So so what are some of those options that, that might still be on the table if the judge does accept the settlement? Well, um, we're considering all of our options 
to take this potentially to um, another court of appeal, potentially. Um, I know that the um, the U.S. trustee in, in the bankruptcy um, and also the U.S. attorney uh, acting on behalf of herself in the Southern District of New York and uh, the Department of Justice have said that these releases, um, which we call non-consensual, non-debtor releases, and, and what that means is we, the states, we don't consent to releasing our claims and we don't consent to releasing our claims against a non-debtor. The Sacklers are not debtors. They're not bankrupt. Uh, the company itself is a debtor, but the Sacklers are not. And so we don't think, and neither does the Department of Justice or the U.S. trustee, that you can force states to accept non-consensual, non-debtor releases. So, you know, it's possible that we'll continue to push this in front of uh, the bankruptcy court, and if necessary, consider our appellate remedies. And th- those non-debtor releases are those that also referred to sometimes as third-party releases. That's right. Uh, they're they're sometimes referred to as third-party releases. I realize that we're nerding out a little bit, uh, <laughs> and we're in the weeds on bankruptcy law. And, um, you know, th- these are really important issues, and 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 that's why I went uh, and testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, in the House of Representatives in Washington, I testified before Congress to let them know that this is wrong. It is fundamentally wrong for a federal bankruptcy judge to try to force states to release our claims. It is unconstitutional. It violates principles of federalism. And and frankly, it gets back to law school, um, the first day of law school, where you where you learn frankly, that the states are sovereign. We retained our rights and, and, and our powers, except for those that we expressly delegated to the federal government. And the federal government is a government of limited powers. This is like the first day of civics and the first day of law school. And we never delegated our police powers to pursue um, um, wrongdoers like the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. And they can't force or cram down a settlement that we don't agree to. So to back up a little bit, the releases that the Sacklers are seeking, essentially, is that a way for them to get bankruptcy protection through the company's bankruptcy filing without the Sacklers personally having to file for bankruptcy? Correct. Correct. Okay. And, and that's what's so outrageous about this whole thing. The company has declared bankruptcy. And and I think most people understand that chapter 11 of the US code is designed to um, allow companies that are actually broke, that are actually insolvent to seek bankruptcy protection, discharge their debts. And and they can do that um, to pay their debts to creditors. And and if they're able to reorganize and, and save jobs and dispose of their assets. And that, uh, to most people, seems like kind of a routine, unfortunately, operation that that companies go through every single day. Um, But that's when the company is actually insolvent um, and doesn't have money to pay its debts. It is not a mechanism for the Sacklers who own Purdue when they themselves are not bankrupt 
to go and basically leverage or abuse the company's bankruptcy to shield themselves. And that's exactly what they're trying to do here. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer. We're speaking with Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. On kind of a practical level, I mean, couldn't the, the Sacklers themselves simply on an individual level just declare bankruptcy and then kind of end up at the same place? If they were bankrupt, but we know that they're not. So essentially, if they did try to do that, that would impose some other additional restrictions on them or that that would be a more complicated process or a process they would not want to go through. Well, let's put it. Let's let's say for the sake of argument that the Sacklers were unable to pay their debts and that they were, in fact, broke or insolvent, which they're not. But if they were for the sake of argument, then all of their assets, all 11 billion dollars plus would be in the control of the bankruptcy court and the bankruptcy court would be able to 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 dispose of their assets, meaning, you know, to take their assets and their money and to pay it out to creditors in order to satisfy their claims. But the Sacklers haven't done that. They haven't turned over all their billions upon billions to the bankruptcy court. They're saying we'll give you roughly four point two, four point three billion over nine years. And, and we'll get to keep everything else. And let me put this in perspective for you, Matt. If they, uh, if, if they purport to pay $4.2 uh, billion over nine years, and you assume that they have $11 billion and probably more than that, well, what that turns out to be, what that works out to be, if you do the math, is that on $11 billion, over nine years, they're going to pay roughly 5% on their money. They're going to more than make up for that 5% through their investment income in their offshore accounts, right? In the various hedge funds and money management vehicles that they put their money in. On $11 billion, 5% on $11 billion will more than fund the obligations they have over nine years to pay this settlement. In the big picture on on this case, uh, the majority of the states that were had been suing Purdue have, have already uh, gotten on board with the bankruptcy plan, as I understand it. The AP reported that about 90 percent of the people and organizations suing Purdue Pharma that voted on bankruptcy, this plan, were in favor of it. The judge, I understand, has has said some good things about it in court. Is, basically, is, is Connecticut kind of part of a goal line stand to try to stop this bankruptcy agreement at this point? It's a goal line stand for families in Connecticut. It's a goal line stand for victims and the 1,400 families who will have an empty chair at Thanksgiving and over the holidays. You know, it's a goal line stand for states like Connecticut that have lost more than $10 billion a year and against a family um, and a company that have done so much damage. And, And they can do more they can do better. And as I said before, um, there is so much pain across this country, but it is a pain not shared by the Sacklers. And they are not going to be any worse for wear under this plan. And I don't think that's right. And that's why I'm a no. 
So in the, the bankruptcy proceeding that, that's ongoing, uh, the virtual proceeding uh, down in White Plains in New York, uh, Reuters reports that on Tuesday, a member of the Sackler family that, that owns Purdue Pharma testified that his family bears a moral responsibility to help abate the opioid crisis. But former Purdue director David Sackler said the family will not contribute financially to the effort unless it receives those broad legal protections that we've been been talking about. Is is there some sort of an admission maybe baked into what he was saying? Yeah, but, you know, that's not enough. And um, they've inched towards some acknowledgement of their wrongdoing, but I haven't heard an outright admission. They haven't agreed to take their names off of schools and museums and hospitals um, where the Sackler name, you know, is still emblazoned and gives gives them some legitimacy um, for their past philanthropy and 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 frankly again they're not doing enough financially to fund treatment and and prevention programs you know people say to me well again isn't isn't that a lot of money and yes it is a lot of money it's not enough money but it's also not about the money our job and the court's job is to seek justice. And this does not produce enough justice. You know, if the Sacklers said, okay, we admit it, we we engaged in wrongdoing and, and we'll give you $100 million. Nobody would say that's enough money. No one would say that that even comes close to providing justice to victims and their families and, and to the already stressed social service and, and addiction infrastructure and mental health infrastructure in this country that, that has to fund treatment and prevention. And, and so is there a line? I suppose there is, um, but, but the truth is, is there's probably not enough money. There will never be enough money, but I know that this 4.2 billion over nine years, that doesn't cut it and it doesn't come close. So I understand that the judge here, Judge uh, Robert Drain, uh, had said essentially that this settlement uh, might avoid uh, the ongoing litigation. Um, I would assume that could be costly. And if this settlement for bankruptcy is not approved, do you think there is there a risk that you might end up with less money ultimately? There's always that risk when you get into a, a, a huge bankruptcy and litigation like this. Um, but that doesn't mean that just because um, this is going to cost money and, and just because there are costs to this process that I shouldn't fight. You know, by that logic, if you wanted to save all the attorney's fees um, and costs that have gone into this, you would have had me give up a long time ago and just take whatever, whatever scraps they were throwing on the table. That's not my job. My job is to fight for justice and for families across Connecticut and to push as hard as I possibly can and to hold these wrongdoers accountable and not to roll over because they have the biggest and baddest lawyers on earth and they've squirreled their billions of dollars away and it's very hard to get at them. I'm not deterred by that. And and it's my obligation and and frankly, my oath as as the state's attorney general to go after them with everything I've got. So Purdue Pharma is based in, in Stamford. Uh, do you know kind of how this, this case ended up in, in White Plains in, in New York? 
Yeah, unfortunately, there appears to be a practice where um, debtors, companies that are about to go bankrupt, they'll forum shop. They'll look for a court that they think is aggressively pro-debtor, pro-company. Um, and, and, and one of those courts, unfortunately, by reputation, is in the Southern District of New York in White Plains. Now, they make some argument that because um, we're in the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, that's our region, and because um, they're near New York, that somehow the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy belongs in that courtroom. But we all know that they forum shopped and, and looked for the court that they thought would be most advantageous to the company and to the Sacklers and to their plan. And, and frankly, that's why there are a number of pieces in, of legislation in, in the House and the Senate in Washington to stop these abuses, to stop forum shopping, to stop families like the Sacklers and people like the Sacklers from forcing uh, um, um, claimants and plaintiffs to accept non-consensual uh, uh, third-party releases or non-consensual non-debtor releases. So, yes, um, there is some relationship that they allege to the court in White Plains, but really it's about old-fashioned forum shopping. Let me say this. I drove up this morning from Stanford. I live in Stanford. And, and people ask me, well, what does that mean to you that Purdue Pharma is in Stanford and the Sacklers? Many of them have lived in and around my home area. And, and I tell people what it means to me as the home state attorney general is that I have a special obligation to be aggressive and to hold them accountable. And we should note that uh, members of the Sackler family say they acted ethically and legally in their role owning Purdue Pharma. They say they were not involved in the day-to-day -day running of the company, although NPR has reported that some court documents indicate that they did push executives to increase OxyContin sales. The company has pleaded guilty to criminal charges. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer. We're speaking with Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nopithanchel. We're discussing Connecticut's involvement in lawsuits seeking some sort of compensation for damage done by highly addictive opioid painkillers. In some cases, drug makers downplayed the addictive risks of the drugs and acted illegally to get more people hooked and sell the pills. Our guest, Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Matt. 
So in our previous segment, we discussed Purdue Pharma, but Purdue was far from the only company to make money selling addictive painkillers. A $26 billion national settlement was recently announced with opioid maker Johnson & Johnson and with pharmaceutical distributors McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen. Johnson & Johnson agreed to get out of the opioid business. Connecticut's share of the settlement will be about $300 million in the coming years. Attorney General Tong, what were the allegations against Johnson & Johnson, and how were they different from those against Purdue Pharma? They're, they're different, and yet they're the same. Um, this is a massive settlement and um, it represents the second largest ever multi-state cash settlement in history, second only to um, the even more massive tobacco settlement uh, of over 20 years ago. And, And this will go a long way to funding treatment and prevention here in Connecticut and we'll get roughly $300 million um, from these four companies. Uh, The allegations are basically that Johnson & Johnson was a manufacturer like Purdue Pharma of opioids and opioid-related material and products. Uh, But also really important here are the claims against the three major drug distributors that distribute most of the pharmaceutical drugs and medicines that we use in this country, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardinal, and McKesson. And, And I think anybody who follows um, the opioid and addiction crisis and, and the devastating story and toll that uh, it has taken on communities across Connecticut and across the country. You know that basically um, people have been overprescribed opioids and painkillers and, and that um, huge quantities of, of drugs have been distributed across the country to pill mills, um, to doctors who overprescribed um, and, and to healthcare providers and pharmacies through which all of these pills flowed. And, and we've heard horror stories in the Purdue Pharma case, for example, they tracked um, the, the, the doctors in pill mills that did the most business for them. And they focused on getting those doctors and pill mills um, even more pills and even more medicine. We've heard horror stories about communities, including communities here in Connecticut, where if you track how many opioids and pills they received, it it far surpasses uh, any reasonable number of pills that that those communities could reasonably consume. And and at the center of all this were the distributors. At the center of all this, the people that moved the product, that actually put it on their trucks and delivered it to the pill mills and the doctors and the pharmacies were the distributors. And, and in contrast to Purdue Pharma, where I said 4.2 billion wasn't enough justice, um, we've worked really hard to push the distributors and Johnson and Johnson. And while I will say again that there's never going to be enough money and never enough justice for the victims of this crisis, this represents a huge amount of of justice and accountability. Um, for people across Connecticut and across the country. $26 billion worth of treatment and prevention, $26 billion worth of accountability and justice. And though it will never be enough, this does a lot more than, than Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers are even close to offering to do. Do you think that the Johnson & Johnson and these three distribution companies have taken more responsibility for their action? Yes, they have. And And let me say this, Connecticut has played a central role, and I want to credit 
Attorney General George Jepson um, for his role in focusing the states on the distributors. And, and, you know, the focus, of course, has been on manufacturers, too, including Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, Mallinckrodt, Insys, other, other makers of pills. But it was George who, in the first instance, when he was attorney general, who said, hey, we should really focus on the distributors. And, and as we do now as states and attorneys general, we come together very often. And we've demonstrated first in tobacco and then in many other cases, the power and the strength of the states coming together and state attorneys general banding together in a very strong coalition to take on these huge interests and very powerful big companies and corporate interests that dominate big parts of our lives. And it was George who said, we gotta look at um, the distributors. And so Connecticut pushed hard against the distributors um, in the early going. And then there was a really important moment in um, late 2019, you know, a few months after, almost a year after I became attorney general, where a small number of states announced that we had a deal at 18 billion. And um, to me and to a number of my sister states and attorneys general, that wasn't nearly enough. So I pushed hard along with other states like Massachusetts and, and Florida and Georgia. We did it on a bipartisan basis. We did it with states big and small from all across the country. And we pushed back and we said, no, 18 billion is not enough. And, and because of our efforts, I was in court in Cleveland, Ohio in federal court and, and looked the the three CEOs of the three major drug distributors in the eye and I said, 18 billion isn't enough and you have to do more. And, and because of that, um, we landed at 26 billion. And I think that, that that will be a huge investment in, in treatment and prevention and addiction science and helping Connecticut, which has been particularly hard hit in this crisis and helping us dig out and, and to help families um, with a lifetime of treatment and to prevent this from happening to other families. Were the distributors essentially in a position to be able to see part of what was going wrong here, that there were too many pills going to certain places or to inappropriate places? They were. And and one thing we do when we settle cases like this is uh, we require the wrongdoers, the defendants to agree to a number of actions, right? We call this injunctive relief. We enjoin them and tell them they've got to do X, Y, and Z. And, and what they're going to have to do is do a much better job and more aggressive job of policing and monitoring their distribution. They're going to have to share that data with the states. They're going to have to share it with us in a way that, that we can compute and calculate and understand uh, where these pills are going. They're going to have to accept a, a monitor and monitoring uh, of, of their distribution and, and how they move pain medication. And so this is a big part of the settlement, too. It's, it's not just about the money. But in, in terms of, of the money itself here, I understand that, that cities and towns that, that were part of the agreement will, will need to sign on. What does that actually look like in Connecticut? Are, are cities and towns actually going to have to sign a document to sign on to this? Yeah, cities and towns are going to have to sign on. I think um, cities and towns and mayors and first selectmen and communities across the state see this as a huge opportunity. Um, the agreement says very clearly, by the way, that this money should be used to fund abatement 
uh, otherwise known as treatment and prevention and addiction science, that, that we have to use this money to abate the crisis. A good chunk of that money needs to go to cities and towns under the agreement. And uh, a good chunk of that money will end up being spent by the state in cities and towns and on the families who need it most. Is there a specific deadline for, for cities and towns to approve it's, it? It's, it's, it's coming up. The state's deadline is coming up in the next few weeks, and then cities and towns have some time after that. Um, I am very confident that, that Connecticut and our municipalities are going to show up in strong support of this settlement. Again, um, I've been attorney general for almost three years now, but this is a once in a generation settlement. This is a once in a generation opportunity to take on um, the worst public health crisis in America. Apart from COVID and before COVID, the opioid and addiction crisis was and continues to be the worst public health, worst public health crisis in America. And this is one of those rare opportunities, you know, over four years and however long I get to serve as attorney general, it's not likely that I will see another opportunity like this, a settlement this big on an issue that's this important to people in Connecticut. Senator Blumenthal, when he was attorney general, he was there for the tobacco settlement and that was a huge opportunity. These cases, um, these settlements, these opportunities don't happen very often in, in the life of an attorney general and, and a state. And that's why it's so important that we take advantage of this opportunity now. So you, you mentioned the, the tobacco uh, settlement a, a couple of times here. Uh, most of the money from the tobacco settlement, at least in Connecticut, did not actually go towards tobacco prevention or addiction treatment. A lot of it went into essentially balancing the state budget or into the general fund. What What's actually kind of the mechanics of this agreement that prevent that from happening, that actually ensure that this money would actually go towards opioid treatment and prevention? Well, let me say two things about that. Number one, the vast majority of the funds in this settlement agreement with the distributors and Johnson and Johnson have to go towards abatement, towards treatment, prevention, addiction science. 70% of the money has to be forward looking. So you have to use it on future abatement. Um, it can't be used for you know past expenses. It has to be used for future activities and investments and in confronting um, opioid abuse and addiction. That's a huge difference um, between this settlement and, and the tobacco settlement. There's also um, requirements that if money is to be spent, for example, on expenses, the expenses of litigation, the expenses of administering this money, that that, that has to be disclosed and that the public has um, an opportunity to see what the money is spent on and, and the state has to make clear um, as it spends the money, what's, what it's spending that money on. And it has to convene a committee so that experts and cities and towns and my office and legislators all participate in this process um, and, and that we together uh, find the best way to distribute this money um, to victims and, and to treatment and prevention providers so that we can really fight this crisis across Connecticut. Let me say about tobacco, though, it has been a huge multi-billion dollar um, effort over these 20 years, and Connecticut continues to receive 
a very significant amount of money last year. I think it was $130 million. And we get that every single year. Let me say, however, that that over this period of time, even though there has been a lot of legitimate criticism about how that money has been sent, spent, the fact is, is that the point of that settlement was to fight the epidemic of youth smoking. And we've been successful in doing that. Is it still a problem? Yes. Is it as big a problem as it was a generation ago? No. And in fact, smoking has been cut by 50% in this country, including in Connecticut. And that has a lot to do with what the states did and and the Attorney General of Connecticut, uh, Richard Blumenthal did uh, almost a generation ago in signing this settlement agreement. And and again, it's not just about the money, it's about all the injunctive relief and and the requirements for action um, that we placed upon the big tobacco companies and all the restrictions that we placed upon um, their marketing and the way they targeted kids. You know, when this settlement agreement was entered into, the kids they were talking about was me. Me and, and, and other young people across Connecticut who were targeted with images of Joe Camel and all the cool swag that, that the big tobacco companies sold and all the promotional programs, they were targeting me and my peers. And, and since that time, um, I think the state has gone a long way to fighting the epidemic of youth smoking and cutting smoking in half. So I, I think the suggestion that that the tobacco settlement, you know, some people say it, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. I don't agree with that. It has made a huge difference in smoking in Connecticut and across the country. The money in this this opioid settlement uh, with, with Johnson and Johnson and the distributors would be delivered over eighteen years. If at some point, let's say, state finances aren't some, aren't so good, and lawmakers did decide to take some of that money to, to sort of balance the, the the state budget, would there actually be any penalty, or would there be anybody who would actually try to hold the state's feet to the fire to, to go to court over that? Look, my uh, in signing this agreement, I I made a number of. Uh, representations and we are agreeing to spend this money on abatement and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure uh, that the state honors its obligations. So we, we've spoken about a, a number of companies here, and there are a couple. There are more that we we didn't even get to uh, agreements with with uh, Malincrod and and McKinsey and Company as well. But overall, was greed the motivation for pretty much all of this? Yeah. It's all about money, um, and and if you read some of the documents, I I entered into a settlement with McKinsey that we announced a few months ago, where they paid upwards of six hundred million for their role in advising Purdue Pharma on how to juice their opioid sales. And in reading these documents about how Purdue targeted and supported these doctors who were overprescribing pills, how they called them the region zero doctors and pill mills that that gave them the, the biggest return, frankly, on their investment by, by moving the most product. If you saw how the Sacklers blamed victims and and peddled peddled these false theories they, they call pseudo addiction, for example. Um, what what the Sacklers claimed with with help from their advisors, including McKinsey, is that 
Um, actually, the problem was that uh, people in pain didn't get enough drugs. They didn't get enough opioids. And if they just took more, they wouldn't be addicted. And it's that kind of, of, of thinking and, and that degree of deception and callousness that has produced this crisis. And that's why I'm so aggressive. That's why when, when you know, I sit with families in my office and we talk about the damage that's been done. And, and, I, and I often, I meet families who have, have triumphed. I meet young people who, who became addicted very young in their teens. You know, they got, they got overprescribed opioids, for example, for falling off a bicycle or for a tennis injury. These are, these are real life examples. And then they fall into addiction and they go to hell and back. And, and many of them are in recovery and doing well right now. But you also know in talking with these victims and their families that this is a daily struggle, that they will be fighting addiction for the rest of their lives. And, and some of them won't make it. Many of them won't make it. And, and that's why it's so important to be aggressive and to hold these wrongdoers accountable. Connecticut Attorney General William Tong, thank you for being on the show. In our next segment, we'll check in with Hartford Current politics reporter Daniela Altamari. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. Filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel, I'm Matt Dwyer. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our guest, Hartford Current politics reporter Daniela Altamari. How are you, Daniela? I'm well. How are you? Good. So a special election for state Senate was held yesterday in Greenwich and parts of Stamford and New Canaan. Republican Ryan Fazio declared victory last night over Democrat Alexis Scavanter. John Blankley was also running. He had lost the Democratic endorsement. He ran in the general election anyway. According to numbers on the Secretary of the State's website, Fazio got just a sliver over 50 percent of the vote. Scavanter got 48 percent and Blankley got 2 percent. Fazio won Greenwich and the part of New Canaan that's in the district. Gavanter won the part of Stamford that's in the district. So, Daniela, should we draw any larger conclusions about the political direction of Fairfield County based on the outcome of this race or not? Well, that's time will tell, right? Who knows? Um, I think uh, there was a story yesterday in the Mirror where um, Mark Pazniok, our colleague, uh, interviewed um, the former holder of that seat. And uh, he said that, you know, it's a special election in August. It's tough to draw conclusions from it. On the other hand, um, this was a huge win. I mean, both parties fought very hard and they really wanted this. You know, the Democrats brought in a string of people. This is Governor Lamont's home Senate district, right? So the symbolism there is is pretty strong, I think, for, for both parties. And, um, you know, there were... Uh, all kinds of um, folks coming in uh, to support the Democratic candidate. Um, Ryan Fazio also brought in some big names, um, pretty much anybody who's anyone in Republican circles, including on the national level. There were people, uh, you know, campaigning with him and, and door knocking with him. So both parties worked very, very hard. Uh, the Republicans came out ahead. So perhaps it is, uh, you know, suggesting of some 
some shift or some change. Um, we'll find out next year during the, the legislative races. I mean, this was historically a Republican district. It's been a Republican district since uh, I think the days of Herbert Hoover. So um, that, you know, it was a very strong uh, red district. And then all of a sudden uh, in 2018, two years into the tenure of Donald Trump, we saw a Democrat with lots of money um, capture that seat. And that was uh, Senator Kasser. Um, she held on in one re-election last year as well, but then, you know, decided she wasn't going to stay in the Senate due to, uh, you know, personal issues around her around her divorce. So she uh, stepped aside, which is why we have that special election to begin with. And that, that 2018 victory by the Democrat Alex Kasser, was that sort of part of kind of a, a larger shift in parts of Fairfield County in, in recent years? I, I think so. I mean, um, what, what that was really all about, that was part of the bigger story. I, I remember going down there in 2018 and interviewing people who, you know, um, had been, again, Republicans for generations. And these were, you know, these are Chris Shea's Republicans. These are Prescott Bush Republicans. These are, you know, sort of these Chamber of Commerce, Main Street kind of Republicans who were just appalled by by Donald Trump and horrified enough so that they were leaving the party. Many, of course, just became unaffiliated voters. Some became Democratic. Some voted with the Democrats. I think uh, that clearly helped um, Alex Kasser uh, gain that seat, um, among other factors. But certainly, you could not discount the Trump factor. Now, Trump's gone. And, um, you know, I think the Republicans were very successful in making this an issue, um, an election about local issues, about um, tax policy, about um, the size of government, about decisions that are being made around the pandemic to some degree. And I think that um, probably helped them, the fact that that Trump is, at least for now, you know, well, he's certainly out of the White House, whether he's gone from the scene. Again, we don't really know that, but, um, He's not uh, in in control of the, you know of the uh, of the presidency. He's not in the president's office anymore. And we discussed this that that sort of trend in in recent years uh, towards maybe at least going purple in parts of Fairfield mm-hmm. County have instead of red have some other parts of the, of the state like the Naugatuck Valley maybe gone a little bit more towards the red. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's been the story. I think over the past, you know, maybe decade or a little less uh, in Connecticut, the suburban districts, uh, and not just Fairfield County, but we're seeing it in the Farmington Valley going back, you know, to uh, twenty eight. Uh, tw- I'm sorry, two thousand and eight. Um, you know, uh, the uh, congressional elections. You had Nancy Johnson being one of those um, sort of moderate Republicans in the in the mold of. Um, of Chris Shays and Prescott Bush. And, and, you know, she's gone and she was replaced uh, by uh, now, you know, two, two successive Democrats. So you're seeing a shift there. And then you're also seeing, uh, as you pointed out, the Naugatuck Valley and wide swaths of Eastern Connecticut really um, going very strong for the Republicans. Republicans are running very well in those places, both on the state and, and local levels. So you're seeing a real sort of realignment, I guess, in, in the political shadings of the state. And Alex Kasser uh, stepped down very unexpectedly uh, in, in the midst of a very contentious divorce. So that's how the seat became open. Mm-hmm. Did you get any sense when you were down in Greenwich that, that people maybe wanted to change away from her or wanted to switch to a different party because of her? Or was was she at all a factor from what from what you got a sense of what was going down there? 
I, I don't have a real strong sense one way or the other. I, I, you know, perhaps didn't, didn't spend enough time down there or talk to enough people to really, to really get that sense. Um, I know uh, perhaps that's true of, of some, but I, I don't know how broad that goes. Um, but uh, Ryan Fazio, I think was in some ways for many people, a very appealing candidate. He's a, a homegrown guy. He um, ran uh, against uh, Senator Kasser. Uh, I guess it was last year and and narrowly lost. So he was just on the ballot. He's familiar um, to people. I think the Republicans did uh, something that perhaps they they haven't always had as much success as the Democrats in terms of getting their voters out. And when you look at the sort of the breakdown, um, turnout was was strong, appeared to be strong in places where Fazio did well. Whereas the piece of the district in Stanford, I believe turnout was much lower. Now it's August. It's a really tough time. So, you know, perhaps no matter how good your get out the vote uh, effort is, you, you might struggle this time of year. But on the other hand, you see, you know, the Republicans um, did that very well. This was a, a big win for for the new chairman. I mean, he's just uh, to kind of take it over the party, Ben Proto and to deliver this victory, um, I think, was was fairly significant for, for him as well. And on a slightly different topic, results from the, the 2020 census uh, were released last week. Uh, so what, what does that show for, for Fairfield County? Well, <laughs> it's interesting. We're talking about Fairfield County politically and, and also looking at the census numbers. You know, it, it's showing in sort of a real stark way how Fairfield County is driving so much of the state population-wise, uh, economically, certainly. I mean, when you look at Stanford, you know, um, surpassing New Haven now, that's uh, that's significant. I think you're seeing a real power shift in in a lot of ways on a lot of levels um, going down to uh, to Fairfield County. We certainly see that, you know, the, the last two governors have been from Fairfield County. I guess actually technically Jody Rell was also from Fairfield County because I believe Brookfield is Fairfield County. Uh, suburban Danbury. We don't always think of that as being part of Fairfield County, but it is Northern Fairfield County. So um, I think you, you're just seeing, uh, you know, seeing a real shift. I, uh, the old uh, saying, you know, about Waterbury was that it was the center of the universe, but perhaps that's moved slightly south now and it's now Stanford. Okay. And is the sense as to very briefly or very quickly, what what is actually sort of causing that growth in, in Fairfield County? Well, I mean, I, I haven't looked at this very closely, but I, I think most people would say it's probably, you know, it's New York. It's it's the it's the strong pull. There's a lot of housing being built um, down there, particularly in Stanford. So I think that's that's bringing in people. And we've seen during the pandemic, not just Fairfield County, but other regions of the state as well, have drawn a lot of folks from other parts of the country um, just moving here, wanting to live in Connecticut, wanting to be here. Thank you. We've been speaking with Hartford Current politics reporter Daniela Altamari. Thank you for being on the show. I'm Matt DeWire. The show's executive producer is Lucy Nalpathanchel. Technical producer, Kat Pastor. Thanks for listening.